From the Financial Times in London, I'm Sarah Gordon and this is FT News. I'm here today with Iris Burnett, a behavioural economist and professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, to talk about gender equality in the workplace. This is a topic that's increasingly high on the agenda for many companies around the world, which are now increasingly having to meet targets or even quotas to improve gender diversity. And although progress has been made in increasing the number of women in the boardroom, there are still not enough women at senior executive level. In the US, the proportion of female CEOs has barely budged over the last 20 years. Iris, why do you think this is? Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. Sadly enough, leadership is not associated with women, but in our minds, a typical leader is male, and women tend to experience something that we refer to as a competence-likeability dilemma, where we either think they are competent and strong, but then they don't conform to what we expect a typical woman to behave like and like her less, or they are likable in which case she conforms to what a typical woman should look like, but we don't perceive her as a strong leader. You recently published a book called What Works? Gender Equality by Design, and you kicked the book off with a fantastic example of the um, Boston Symphony Orchestra in the 1970s, which started auditioning players behind a screen. And this resulted in a very sharp rise in the number of women being selected to join the orchestra. And you give that as an example for your argument that you believe debiasing organisations rather than individuals is the most effective way to address this challenge. Why do you feel that's the case? So screens are particularly important design innovation for me for two reasons. One is just that they demonstrated quite powerfully how important unconscious bias is in keeping us from choosing talent. The screens were introduced even though the orchestra directors at the time felt that screens really weren't necessary, that they, of all people, only cared about the music that was played and not about what somebody looks like. Now, it turns out, as you said, that the screens, in fact, did increase the fraction of female musicians dramatically. So that's the first insight. The second one is the screen changed outcomes without changing mindsets. And that's, as you said, the topic of my book, that I am trying to argue that we shouldn't focus on just changing minds, but we should really focus on making it easier for the minds that we've got, for our biased minds to get things right by debiasing the organizations in which we study, work and live. And one of the things I most enjoyed about the book was that you give a plethora of practical examples, for example, around performance measurement and appraisal and interviewing. Can you give us some examples of what really does work to debias these processes? So first of all, when you ask me about what does work, I might want to say just a word about how I measure what works and what doesn't work. So typically what the book does is it relies on experimental studies, which very much build on the kinds of techniques that we normally use in the natural sciences, where we give, for example, a uh, new drug to the treatment group and then have a control group, which only gets the placebo. And then we can really measure what difference difference really makes. And Now we use those very same techniques in the social sciences, in my own discipline, in economics, as well to understand whether a given intervention works. So that's a bit of a preamble to help our listeners understand how I evaluate whether something works or doesn't work. But now to your question, there are a number of things which we love and do, which do not work. For example, unstructured interviews are 
a favorite tool of many hiring managers. And the evidence really is overwhelming that they do not work, that they do not predict future performance. So an alternative to structured interviews are structured interviews. A structured interview is different in many ways. The name itself explains the core difference, and that is we predetermine the structure of the interview beforehand and think about the questions that we want to ask. We use those questions for every person who we interview, and we ask those questions in the very same order with every person who we interview. Research does suggest that structured interviews work much better. However, For organizations which want to take an additional step, the best instrument measuring future performance, in fact, are work sample tests. Now, this is not really rocket science in that if you can think of something that mimics the kinds of jobs and tasks that people will be involved in once they are in the door, if you can measure those beforehand, that would be a very good way to evaluate whether somebody is actually fit for the job that you want to hire them for. You served as um, the academic dean of the Kennedy School um, for three years from 2011 to 2014. And so you, you had the opportunity to put some of your ideas into practice. What were the most effective ones? Yes, absolutely. An interesting custom in academia is that we kind of go with the academic market and hire economists, for example, in February and then other markets for political scientists or sociologists or psychologists happen at other times of the year. And so we tend to hire sequentially. And what our research has shown that if we do that, we're much more likely to go with the candidates that we are used to. In fact, um, if I may, I'm just going to quickly tell you how I came to do this research. About 20 years ago, people were interested in students' snack choices. And they gave students either various snacks to choose from now for the next, say, week. So they had to choose seven snacks today out of hundreds of snacks available. Or they chose a snack every day of the week for that particular day. And what the researchers found was that if we choose sequentially, we tend to go for our favorite snack. And if we have a bundle kind of whole package of snacks in front of us, we tend to go for variety. And so we have actually applied that to uh, hiring decisions as well and can show that if we make more than one decision at a time and make them comparatively, we are much more likely to go for diversity rather than for our favorite snack or the favorite person who kind of looks um, the part. And that's something that we've now been doing. We have merged our searches and in a given faculty meeting, try to evaluate at least three searches at the same time. For us, that means having three finalists per search. So we look at nine final candidates. And this is not research, but just reporting to you, it certainly has dramatically changed the faculty meeting discussions because you can't have nine of the same. It's so much in your face. But if you only see three, then of course the search committee will say, and they will truthfully say that because much of this is unconscious. We've tried really, really hard to find the non-white, non-male, non-American faculty members, and they clearly haven't done a great job at it. But if you bundle the searches, that's happening. Sarah, I have to tell you one more story, which I think might be interesting more generally, because here's somebody who has studied unconscious bias and who has studied these interventions for a long time and really believes in data and the importance of data and measurement and learning. And one day I come to the office as academic dean and the students were camped out and some students were camped out in front of my office saying they needed to see me right away. And so we met and they 
said, or at least I heard them say, that they were concerned about the lack of women faculty. And of course, that was my, my topic and was happy to talk to them about how I thought about this and how we were trying to increase the fraction of women and other underrepresented groups, only for me to realize midway through that they actually weren't particularly concerned about faculty, but just about people with voice in the institution more generally, meaning that includes speakers, guests, fellows, postdocs, anyone coming through, sitting on a panel, being behind a podium, writing an op-ed, doing the kinds of things that you do at the FT as well. And they were just concerned that we didn't have enough female voices. Um, you've, you've mentioned in the past how important it was to have um, portraits of female role models up in the Kennedy School. And portraits Which is on the world. something that I know you changed. Exactly. Yeah, so for both portraits and for the female speakers, what was true is that we hadn't measured beforehand. So we have this very diverse, um, decentralized place at the Kennedy School with 12 different research centers, 12 different speaker series, and nobody had ever measured the demographic composition of these 12 different speaker series. And that's, of course, what the students experience. But we individually, as faculty member, only went to one, you know, the one that is closest to our research area. And so as academic dean, I introduced that and held the research center directors accountable and said, you, you know, now report at the end of every year, demographic composition of your speakers. And of course, many of them were shocked, uh, as was I. Yeah. Uh, what they found. I mean, you're a great fan of the, the use of data as well, aren't you, in, in, yes. in tackling this? Um, what you're not a great fan of is diversity <laughs> training uh, as a way of tackling unconscious bias. And you give a particularly depressing example in the book of uh, some students who, after watching a diversity training video, asking them to suppress unfavorable attitudes towards the elderly, actually evaluated older job applicants more negatively after the training than before. What then are the most effective ways of tackling unconscious bias? Well, sadly enough, yes, the evidence on diversity training is not very encouraging. I would argue that we really have to take a detour. And what I mean with a detour is we have to start by debiasing our practices and procedures. And that does include hiring processes, but it also includes the performance appraisals, performance evaluations. For example, we do we should do away with the common practice of asking our employees to self-evaluate and rate themselves and then share those self-ratings with their managers before the managers make up their minds because much evidence suggests that that, of course, is going to affect the ratings of the managers. And if men and women, for example, or people from different cultures differ in the degree to which they can afford to be self-confident, or some other people might call this bragging, that is going to affect the manager's evaluation. So, yes, I, I am arguing we should debias our systems, not saying that this can't have a feedback loop influencing our minds. So going back to your opening example of the orchestras, it's a very interesting thought experiment to imagine whether we now could take the curtains away. Because now on the major orchestras in the US, because of the curtains, we have 40%, almost 40% female musicians. Now that we see women in those positions and seeing really as believing, maybe we could afford to do away with the curtain again. Maybe mindsets have changed. But of course, orchestras now are very nervous. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be willing to do that. How relevant are the recommendations that you make on gender balance in the book for tackling other imbalances such as ethnic diversity? So some of them are generalizable and others are not. 
the blind evaluation must be generalizable. And all evidence that I have seen suggests that they are generalizable, that they just help us focus on the talent that it's in front of us, independent of the demographic characteristics of these of the talent. So they uh, must apply really across demographic characteristics. Now, there's others which have more to do with the kinds of biases that affect women in particular. So the one that I mentioned in the beginning on competence and likability has very much to do with gender in that women experience this dilemma of not being perceived both as competent and likable at the same time. And for women to overcome that, that is a hard challenge that other demographic groups don't face. So it, it does depend a bit on the intervention. But you mentioned portraits before. Certainly, there's also huge evidence suggesting that the stereotypes that we activate through the kinds of things that we see, including portraits, work across demographic groups. One study uh, reminded or showed pictures to uh, Asian American girls. These were schoolgirls before they did a math test and either reminded them of their Asian identity or of their gender identity. And what happened was that these Asian American girls performed better on math when they were reminded of being Asian and worse on math when they were reminded of being women. So that's how subtle this can be. Yes, so your example has just shown an incredibly difficult challenge, but thank you for suggesting so many really very positive ways of tackling it. Professor Burnett, thank you very much indeed for talking to the FT today. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for having me.